if you came to me and I was going to shake your hand, imagine how weird it would be if I was like, oh my God, I don't know where his hand is. So I'm going to like start staring at his hand. And so I stretched my hand out and I was like, oh, I, I have to look at you because I've got to be conscious of where right. your hand is. Right. This is Dana DiTomaso from Kickline, and you're listening to Ash Roy and the Productive Insights Podcast. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to www.productiveinsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. I'm Ash Roy, the founder of ProductiveInsights.com. This episode is brought to you by the Productive Insights podcast editing service, which takes away all the pain of podcast editing. All you have to do is upload your file onto Dropbox and we'll take care of publishing the episode onto your WordPress site and onto iTunes. Book a call with me on callashroy.com to discuss how we can get started today. Welcome to episode 142 of the Productive Insights podcast. I have a very special guest today, Dr. Srini Pillay, who is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And today we talk about some very interesting topics, particularly around using the power of being unfocused to maximize your productivity. Now, this sounds counterintuitive on the face of it, but the truth of the matter is being unfocused And allowing your mind to meander, to wander, is a very important part of rejuvenation, which in turn allows you to be a lot more productive when you choose to focus your mind. We cover a lot of very interesting ideas in this first part of this two-part series. We talk about the fact that 2.5% of us are supertaskers who can focus on more than one thing at a time, that 46.9% of the population spends their time daydreaming, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, that context switching is an enemy to productivity, but planned redundancies where you allow your mind to relax and be unfocused is very important to helping you focus on the times that you choose to focus. We talk about psychological Halloweenism, Steve Jobs, and how he used the power of mindfulness and intuition to build the most valuable company in the world today, and lots more. So I hope you enjoy this first part of this two-part conversation. In the second part, we'll talk about action steps, key insights, and what you can do to harness the power of being unfocused and really take your productivity to the next level while still improving your lifestyle and reducing your stress levels. Now, I do mention a couple of other resources in this conversation, one of which is my conversation with Dr. James Carlopio in episode 127. You can access that at ProductiveInsights.com forward slash 127. And then there's the Steve Jobs Stanford address, which I have created detailed show notes for and a link to the video on YouTube, along with a very long blog post, which gives you some actionable insights actionable insights that you can implement in your life. So I hope you find this episode valuable. If you do like it, please do share it with your friends. Your referral is the ultimate compliment and please do leave a review on iTunes. Just head over to iTunes in the search bar, type in Productive Insights, click on reviews and you can leave a review there. Thanks in advance. I hope you enjoy this conversation. On with the show. Here's Dr. Srini Pillay. Hello, everyone. Today, I have a very special guest, Dr. Srini Pillay, who's an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. He's also known for combining the head and the heart, literally and figuratively, in an approach to personal development 
and goal mastery that blends science and spirituality to combat the stresses faced by high-achieving people in academia, in business, and in life. Now, Srini has a talent for translating fairly complex principles around medicine and psychiatry into more easy-to-consume pedestrian everyday language, and that is one of his real skills. He enlightens and inspires people with equal measures of insight, humor, and deep human compassion. He's the author of quite a few books, the most recent one of which is called Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, which is all about unlocking the power of the unfocused mind. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Srini Pillay from neurobusinessgroup.com. Welcome, Srini. Thank you so much for having me, Ash. It's lovely to talk to you and to sort of share my thoughts on the subject. Cool. It's great to have you. So, Srini, let's start by talking about the idea of an unfocused mind and how it relates to productivity. Typically, we tend to associate productivity and impact with being very focused. But your book talks about something that sounds counterintuitive on the face of it. So would you like to share some thoughts around this? Sure. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think in the book, I overtly acknowledge the fact that focus is extremely important, that you can't really get something done if you're just completely distracted. But what I wanted to point out is that not all unfocus is distraction, that actually unfocus pertains to a number of different mental states Mm -hmm. and that we spend 46.9% of our days daydreaming anyway, all of us. Wow. So why not actually learn to unfocus productively so that we can actually re-energize our brains, stimulate creativity, have a broader perspective of what's going on, notice the competition in the wings, and also activate our prediction circuits and our self-circuits. So the unfocused circuits in the brain are really those circuits that get turned on when we take our mind off of a focused task. So in the course of a day, most people feel like they get up in the morning, they've got to go to work, they start, they have meetings, they see clients, uh, and at the end of the day, they go home and they feel like if they just stay focused, they can get to the end of the day. But the pattern of focus, focus, focus is basically energy drain, energy drain, energy drain. So by the time you get to the end of the day, you're dealing with a brain that has been essentially utilized all day. Yes. Unfocused basically allows you to go through your day with focus, unfocused, focus, unfocused. And so there are a number of disadvantages to focus and a number of advantages to unfocus, which I can go into in a little more detail when when you're interested. Sure, sure. Okay, well, that's a very nice overview. But let me ask you this. Context switching is one of the enemies of productivity as we see it. And just for the listeners, if you're not familiar with context switching, it's just the process of switching from one task to another. Now, I appreciate what you're talking about is not so much context switching. You're talking about periods of focus followed by almost planned periods of unfocus, as opposed to hopping between one task and another, which is particularly unproductive. And correct me if I'm wrong, but what I think you're saying is if you have these planned redundancies, as it were, these planned times of unfocus in your day, you're less likely to context switch. Would you agree? Yes. So I think, I, you know, I think with most things in mental health or in brain science, there's a range of within which they are true and then they become untrue. So I think to a certain extent, and certainly for the large majority of the population, context switching is problematic. However, 2.5% of the population are actually super taskers. They can actually do two or more things at the same time and do really well at them. Wow. And I think we have to sort of think about the context of the context switching. 
So, for example, if you're context switching just because you need to finish two tasks, you may have a, a decrease in your productivity because your brain can't switch as easily between one task and another. However, if you're context switching because you have to, so if you're in an emergency room, for example, mm -hmm. and you have three people who need different stages of treatment, but you can't just finish one person, go from the beginning to end, then by the time you get to the other person, the person may actually be dead. So <laughs> what you want to do is actually go in, quickly evaluate someone, put up a drip, say, I'll come back to you in a second because there's someone else who needs a drip, and then you go to another patient. So that way, you're actually going back and forth in a way that, that's useful. Now, in the book, what I describe are different ways in which you can become better at this. So while a large majority of studies do show that multitasking is not that helpful, I think for anybody who's at a job, has a family, potentially has kids, has friends, you know that you sort of have to context switch a lot of the time during the day. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing I would say is that context switching is particularly helpful if it's done in a planned way. Mm -hmm. So, for example, hobbies, which are essentially a planned context switch, mm -hmm. saying, okay, I'm going to finish a certain amount of work, and then I'm going to go practice my hobby. Studies actually show that if you are engaged in a hobby every day for a year, you can protect your brain and prevent dementia. Wow. Studies also show that uh, there was a study done of scientists that actually showed that scientific citations correlated with people having hobbies versus not having hobbies. Although one of the things that the study showed was that having a hobby matters. It definitely helps you because at some level, your brain is making different associations and it's getting time off from the primary task at hand. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the hobby actually needs to have some kind of relationship to the primary task. So for me, for example, I'm obsessed with tennis. I'm not particularly good at it, but I really love it. And so when I play tennis, you know, because I'm thinking a lot about startup culture, and at the same time, I'm thinking about when to be offensive, when to be defensive, when to, when to focus, when to loosen up. I take those same principles, and then I apply them to my life as well. You know, I think an overt example of this in tennis is if you look at Roger Federer and how he served. My favorite player. Yeah, me too. I <laughs> absolutely love him. Poetry in motion. Yeah, I can watch him endlessly. Yeah. But if you, if you look at Federer and you watch how he hits a forehand yes. or how he serves, his eye is never on the goal. Right. His eye is always on the ball and he's in the moment. Yeah. So as a concept that makes us ask, people always say, always have your eye on the target. Well, if you have your eye on the target, you're not going to be in the moment. Right. So part of what Federer teaches us is that by repeated practice, you begin to develop a brain blueprint of where you want the ball to go. Yes. And with a strong imagination, you can direct your brain to take you to your goal because you create a blueprint and then you just stay in the moment and your body directs you there. Right. So that's an example of overt unfocus where you're not constantly focused on your goal. You know, like people who are trying to reach a financial target of, let's say, $100,000 or $200,000. If you're trying to increase that to simply always be thinking about the money and not be in the moment, a lot of times you're not able to reach your goal because you're not giving everything that you've got to the moment. Yes. So unfocusing from the target and just being in the moment is an important way to unfocus. So all in all, what I'm saying is that context switching in the context of multitasking can cause decrements in the brain. It can rob your brain of its maximum potential. Yet there are other contexts such as hobbies or such as taking your, your eye off the goal you know, and being in the moment in which unfocus can be particularly helpful.
That's very interesting. There's two or three things that came up for me when you were saying that, and I just want to bring them out. One of them was the fact that Bruce Lee, who was a great philosopher, apart from being an amazing martial artist, often was known to have said something along those lines, which was, you know, true mastery is when you become so good at your craft that you forget everything and then your body just takes over and you work on automatic. It smacks of something similar, if that's the right term. The other thing that came up for me was when I interviewed my lecturer, when I did my MBA, he was become a good friend of mine, Dr. James Carlopio, and he's an organizational psychologist. And I can't remember the terms he used, but it's that thing where they talk about unconscious incompetence to conscious competence. Yes. So yeah, essentially, I can't remember the exact phrase, but the idea is that you can be competent or incompetent, yeah. and you can be unconsciously competent or incompetent, or consciously competent or incompetent. And unconscious competent is competence is particularly helpful because if you actually think about it, and I always find this interesting because most people focus on strategies or oh. on what they're thinking consciously. But if you ask most neuroscientists, they would say maybe two to maximum five to eight percent of mental activity is conscious, that about 98 percent of what's going on in your brain is under the radar or unconscious, which is kind of remarkable because we tend to think that we know what we're doing most of the time. Yet there's a body of information that shows us that even when we say, I intend to do that, like let's say you say, I have to make a career switch. So and I intend to do that. Your brain has started activating before your intention. So at some level, you are simply expressing what your brain has already decided. Wow, okay. So, you know, while there are studies that refute this and argue this, I think a lot of people believe that it is possible that your brain is gathering data and starting a course toward a goal long before you actually know that consciously. So one of the things that I describe in the book is what can you do on a day-to-day basis to develop this unconscious competence? Mm. You know, how can you switch over? And in the context of multitasking, for example, the overt example that I describe is the handshake. If you came to me and I was going to shake your hand, imagine how weird it would be if I was like, oh my God, I don't know where his hand is. So I'm going to like start <laughs> staring at his hand. <laughs> and so if I stretch my hand out and I was like, oh, I, I have to look at you because I've got to be conscious of where right. your hand is. Right. You, know, you would look at strangely. You'd That'd be, like, be really weird, stuff. yeah. <laughs> so, and that's because in the brain, there are seeing neurons, which allow me to see where your hand is, and there are guiding neurons. So my brain can detect a position in space, and at some level, you have to trust the guiding neurons so that when I, when I extend my hand out, my hand is going to go to approximately where your hand is, and your hand is going to go to approximately where my hand is. Yes. And that switch to what that is, is I think a great metaphor for surrender. Like if you talk to anybody who's sort of in the flow, for yeah, example, yeah, yeah. they're not grasping onto things. If you talk about people who are sort of in the moment of their days and who are really loving what they're doing, it doesn't even necessarily have to do with the task at hand. A lot of times it has to do with the fact that they have mastered the art of surrender. Mm. And in mastering that art of surrender, they are able to have just the right amount of seeing and guiding so they can switch between. Now, mastering the art of surrender, though, I'd just like to qualify that with you first need to become unconsciously competent before you can surrender, right? So let's take the handshake example. A six-month-old baby would probably not have a snowball's chance in hell of being able to you know, meet your hand where it is and so on because he or she is so 
inept at it because they haven't done it enough times. But by the time you're 20 or something, you've shaken enough hands and now it's sort of unconscious competence. So you can't surrender till you've got that nailed. To a certain extent, or you can keep on practicing surrendering. So for example, when I'm working with a coach in tennis and I say to her, you know, should I be thinking about the structure of the stroke or should I be just playing? And she said, well, this is your coach, your coaching session. So think about the structure of the stroke, but also practice surrendering. Because if you only practice the structure of the stroke, you're not going to practice knowing what it is not to think. And I think in the book, I point out some very simple techniques that can actually help you develop this capacity to surrender. So for example, as I said, 46.9% of our days are spent daydreaming. But there are a couple of things that I think uh, people could remember to build into their day. So number one, there's a thing called positive constructive daydreaming, which really sounds like an oxymoron, but Jerome Singer has studied this form of daydreaming since the 1950s. And what Singer found is that it's not helpful to slip into a daydream and it's not helpful to ruminate over and over again over a problem. But it is helpful if you do the following three things. Firstly, plan your daydreaming time. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be planned because if you slip into it, you need to do these other two things. But one thing you can do to ensure this is plan it. The second thing you can do is be doing something low key. So Singer and his colleagues and people subsequently have found that if you're doing nothing, it's not as effective as doing something low-key like walking, gardening, or knitting. Right. And then the third thing is as you begin to withdraw your attention from the outside, you start to turn your attentional flashlight inwards, Mm -hmm. and you start this particular positive constructive daydreaming with positive and wishful imagery. So something like lying on a beach or lying on a yacht, and you let your mind wander. And the funny thing about mind wandering in that context is that it's not quite as random as we think it is. That in fact, in your brain, while these unfocused circuits are on, it's called the default mode network, what we used to think was the do mostly nothing network, which is really not true. It it uses up most of the brain's energy, you know, about 20% of the brain's energy budget is utilized at rest. Effort just tacks on another 5%. So when you are in these mind-wandering states, your brain is doing a lot of different work, and it actually helps you become more creative, and it also relieves your brain because it's allowing for an energy cycle. So it's allowing for your brain to become more energized in the focus circuits because it's taking the stress off of the focus circuits. So these three things I, I think are particularly important. Now, people often say to me, oh, come on, I'm not, like, I've got to finish my work. I can't suddenly have a positive, constructive daydreaming moment. And what I say is, think about the half hour after lunch. Think about mid-afternoon. When you're in a, some kind of slumber anyway, why wouldn't you want to build one of these techniques into your day right. to revitalize your brain? So another example would be napping. You know, and a lot of corporations have now begun to build napping pods and rooms where people can nap because they know that five to 15 minutes of napping can actually give you one to three hours more clarity. So, you know, that's a general recommendation for napping. Doodling, you know, at schools, people are always shouting at kids for doodling, you know, pay attention. Yeah. Well, Jackie Andrade and her colleagues actually did a study in which they showed that they gave people a telephone message to listen to, and they had them remember eight names in eight places. And what they found was that in the people who doodled, their memory was 29% better than the people who were paying attention. 
And that's because in the doodling state, your brain's unconscious and this default mode network is turned on and your brain becomes more like a relaxed sponge so it can absorb information. Whereas in that tight state, it's stiff. So imagine taking a stiff sponge and trying to absorb anything. It's very difficult. And there's another technique that I particularly like for practice, and I I recommend this to people and their families, Mm -hmm. which I call psychological Halloweenism. And it was based on a study that showed that, and again, it's not that these are stereotypes that were determined by the study. It's not that all people are this way, but they took a creative stereotype, which would be an eccentric poet, Mm -hmm. and then they took a rigid stereotype, would be a rigid librarian. And what they found is that if you're trying to solve a creative problem, like let's say I say, I'm going to start now, and in one minute, I want you to tell me as many uses as you can for a brick. And that's a typical, so you have to say, you know, house and maybe paving outside. Or So you keep on going through this. They found that if you embody the personality of an eccentric poet, you are statistically significantly more likely to be creative than if you embody the personality of a rigid librarian. Wow. And they also found that the same people who embody the other personality could actually reverse the effect. So if I say be an eccentric poet, you become, let's say you say, oh, that's great. I'm going to relax, allow my mind to do whatever it wants to do. By taking on another personality, you're actually able to think through the lens of that person. Whereas a rigid librarian, your mind immediately becomes very focused in a particular way, which obviously can be helpful under certain circumstances. But for creativity, you're at a disadvantage. So these are just some of the things. I think another simple thing is walking. So studies show that if you walk on a meandering path, mm-hmm. and if you walk outside, it is superior to walking on a treadmill or just walking around the block for creativity. So there's a phenomenon known as embodied cognition, where your physical body and your activity can actually impact the way you're thinking. And so in the book, what I describe is you know, different techniques you can build into your day. And again, you can start with just one or two of these techniques each day and then build it into your day. And and then there are a lot of other subtleties, I think, like we just talked about earlier around mindfulness versus mind-wandering, which I think is a good distinction to make. Yes, absolutely. And just to expand on that a little bit, you know, mind-wandering is distinct and different from mindfulness insofar as mindfulness is about focusing on your breath and creating a present moment kind of focus, whereas mind-wandering has got the meandering element to it, which allows you to almost do the guitar equivalent of jamming it just allows your mind to just you know explore different parts a couple of really interesting points came up when you were talking about the walking i think that was a psychological halloweenism thing you were talking about steve jobs used to be a big proponent of walking and he'd have a lot of walking meetings and he he also said that in your heart you already know what you want to do before you consciously know it this is the stanford address which i wrote a whole blog post about because I was very moved by it. And at the time, I thought it was a bit mumbo-jumbo, but I was very intrigued by the degree to which he surrendered to his intuition. And as we know, he was a big practitioner of mindfulness, and Zen was imbued in all his, and is still a, a big part of all of Apple's devices and the culture. He clearly believed in this approach of being the eccentric poet. I remember him saying, our employees are not engineers, they're artists who happen to be engineers. And he took pride in that. Yeah, and I I actually think that that kind of mentality is going to become increasingly important. So one of my platforms, and I'm sort of interested in reminding people that linear thinking 
going from A to B, is going to become increasingly commoditized, meaning yes. robots are taking over jobs. More than a third of jobs will be taken over by machines. Yes. And actually, it's not just, I mean, there are some really funny jobs that robots do. They deliver food. They, uh, you know, they do that kind of, but it's not just those jobs. If you look at some of the high-risk jobs, yeah. they're jobs like middle managers, doctors, you know, there's a lot of different jobs where you know, a robot can integrate information faster to come up with a diagnosis. So Absolutely. the competence for intuition and creative thinking is going to become increasingly important. And while they are creative robots, the reality is that we have an amazing capacity to be creative. Yes. So building these techniques into our days, I think, is really relevant in terms of employment. And in terms of Steve Jobs, he's actually an example I use in the book many times because what i what what i so in in the stanford address he talks about one particular thing that he talks about that i think captures what i'm saying in tinker dabble doodle try is that you can't join the dots of your life backward that's right you can't join them moving forward okay so that was the end of part one of this two-part series where dr Srini Pillay and i talk about how to use the power of unfocus or planned redundancies to maximize your productivity In the second part of this two-part series, which you'll find on ProductiveInsights.com forward slash 143, we'll continue this conversation about how Steve Jobs used this approach to harness his intuition and really build a massively valuable company, the most valuable one today. We'll look at some key insights from our conversation and then talk about some action steps. I look forward to talking to you in part two of this two-part conversation, which you can access at ProductiveInsights.com forward slash 143. See you there. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today? 